nobody's coming to save you. My newborn son certainly couldn't save me. My mother, my job, my friends, nothing outside of me could save me until I was willing to really make the commitment to change in my own life. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Charlie Engel. How are you? Man, I am. I'm actually really good, and I, I try to be honest when somebody asks me that question. Yeah. No, it, it, and you got to love it when you ask that question. And then they're like, I'm terrible, man. And you're like, oh, here we go. Let's let's get into it. <laughs> um, and listen, we're on a podcast. It could make for good uh, radio. Yeah. So got to start from the beginning. You know, I just assume you were like, you're born and you just like sprinted out and started doing laps in the halls or like, take me back. Where did it all start? Only when I was on cocaine. But okay, other perfect. than that. Yeah, it's a good way to know, start. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, dude. So it is, you know, my parents were 18 years old. So oh, okay. uh, when I was born, so they were kids, they were practically children themselves. And and where were you? And North Carolina. So my dad was actually playing for Dean Smith uh, at the University of North Carolina and his first huh. couple of years of coaching back in the day. And yeah, my mom was a playwright and an artist and theater okay. person, and they didn't stay married all that long. But uh, I, I like to think that they got one good thing out of it. But <laughs> I had a very, uh, I'm 59, so I really grew up in mean, my, my early childhood was in the 60s in North Carolina. And put it this way, by the time I was five years old, I knew how to make a, a protest sign that I could hold up. So I, I managed to protest uh, pretty much everything from, you know, anti-war to gay rights in the 60s, which my mother was well ahead of the curve at the time. And yeah, it was a really interesting, you know, it was an interesting upbringing and one where I like to say that my mom taught me how to think and not what to think. Nice. Um, Super liberal, super liberal upbringing, but you know, I, I can't- Is that common in North Carolina? Forget very idea. uncommon, very yeah, uncommon. So. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I'm of an age where, in fact, when I was in like fourth grade, you know, busing, mandatory busing took place uh-huh. uh, for me. So there were kids, you know, in particular African American kids being bussed into my school. Yeah. I had the good fortune of being a kid growing up in a household where it it never occurred to me that I shouldn't be someone's friend. Right. And so, and I, by the way, I had hair like halfway down my back as a kid I looked like a little girl and you know it was just but that's that's the way it was for me and then I my parents were divorced early my dad was in California and he's he's also super liberal but when I finally moved in with him as a 13 year old yeah I'd never played a sport I'd never I'd pretty lousy student all of that my dad was a more regimented hard charging guy so I went from seeing a play every night of the week, you know, yeah. that my mother was producing to playing football, basketball, baseball. I ran track and cross country. Oh. The only thing I was good at was track and cross country. I was, I was six feet tall, which is what I am now. So I kind of, yeah. I hit my, I hit my peak. At 13, at 13. You were six foot. Yeah. That's, that's I a lot. Feet, but I was like 120 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I could, I could jump, I could run, 
you know, I broke five minutes in the mile when I was, wow. you know, 13. The first I remember, I think it was like at 13, you had to run the mile in under 10 minutes and a lot of kids yeah. struggled. And you're, you're 13 years old breaking yeah. five, which well, is won, an insane feat for most people, period. Exactly. Well, I won like the state of California in, you know, yes, uh, junior Olympics. And anyway, look, man, here's the thing, though. Yeah. I went from that, you know, and a, and a high school experience where I was, captain of the teams, student body president, made well, take, taking a pause before before we jump too far ahead. Yeah. Why did you move in with your dad at 13? What was it that took you? You know what? Wow. It's actually a really I haven't answered that question in a very long time. And it's uh, I address it in my book because it was a very painful look. My mom was not my mom was doing her own thing. And she I was, as I like to say, with my mother, I was lovingly neglected. Sure. <laughs> And there was, you know, she was an amazing woman. She passed a few years ago and like, she was incredible, but you know what? She had her own life. And yeah. I reached a point where as a 13 year old, as a 12 year old, we moved to Attica, New York, where my mother taught acting and writing in Attica State Prison. And I basically, you know, was raising myself up there and I got in some trouble not terrible, but you know, I, I drank a couple times cause I was hanging out with some, you know, I, although I look, Eric, I like to say this, when people say you're, ha when people say this, I was hanging with the wrong crowd. I always look at them and say, how do you know you weren't the wrong crowd? Yeah, exactly. Everybody always points the finger the other way. Right. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I made the, I went to my mom and I just said, you know, look, if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to move in with dad. And I actually didn't learn until much later in life, honestly, how deeply it, it wounded her. I mean, she, she wanted what she felt. She wanted what was best for me, or at least what I thought was best. Yep. And, and look, it was the right choice. I mean, I, I got a chance to play sports. I made good grades. I did all these things. I ended up as 17 year old going to the university of North Carolina to play yep. football, huh? arguably. Was that you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps and we picked away? Yeah. And you know, and look, dude, to to be deep and real, yeah, I did what so many people do in their lives. You know, I tried to please my father, and I never got any satisfaction out of yeah. that. Never, yeah. you know. And and it wasn't until much later in life that I understood that that just simply wasn't going to happen. Like I, yeah. you know, my dad respects, and, and again, he's still alive, and you know, God bless him, but you know, he respects money. Mm -hmm. Um, he's not a passion guy. And you know, the fact of the matter is I, my, my goal has never been to make a pile of money unless it was yeah. to actually go do something. <laughs> yeah. Right. right? Sure. Yeah. And so I went to school at Carolina, uh, UNC as a 17 year old freshman, I actually thought, and I should, I mean, I am kidding, but I thought there would be like a banner on the dorm that said, you know, welcome, Charlie. You know, you're so awesome. Now we can all start our college experience. And yeah. it took like a week, maybe less, for me to figure out just how incredibly average I was. Like, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, you were the best in the state when you were in high school, right? Yeah, but there were 4,000 other freshmen at UNC. Yeah, exactly. All yeah. Had, they all had good grades. They all, yeah. you know, they all had the same credentials I did. And yeah. so... What I figured out pretty quickly, though, was that I was all-American, first-team, grade-A drinker. Oh, and, there you, go. you know, not something to aspire to. But the fact of the matter is, at that point, the drinking age was still 18 in North Carolina. So this is 1980. 
Yeah. I never play a down of football. I never step on a football field again, but I had the audacity to go out for the basketball team at Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually made the JV basketball team at Carolina and, and All right. the, JV, the JV coach was Roy Williams who ended up, you know, later on being Carolina's varsity coach for many years, just retired mm-hmm. this past year. And one of the, you know, one of the greatest coaches ever, but I, I got a chance to actually be at Carolina with, you know, with Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Sam Perkins. That's and, a nice time. <laughs> yeah. And so that was my experience at Carolina, but I, you know, by the time my senior year came around, I flunked out. I drank oh, wow. myself. I drank and cocaineed my way out of college. Yeah. And it was the first, it was the first real lesson for me that I was different in the sense that, you know, I hung out with a lot of guys who also partied, but for the most part, you know, they, they stopped at, if it was a, if, it was a, if there was class the next day, they stopped at three o'clock in the morning and actually went to bed for a while and got up and went to class. Yeah. The difference with me is when I really dove into that lifestyle, there was no going to class. Like there was yeah. no stopping until I was out of money or time yeah. or resources or everything. Like that was it. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a, it was a mess. I made a mess of things. And I spent the next 10 years of my life actually moving to a new place. I moved to Seattle. I moved to LA. I moved to San Francisco. I moved to Atlanta. I went to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And every time I would go, I would get a job, a good job. I was a salesman, right? So yeah. I was like, in California, I was the top Toyota salesman in the country for a couple of years. I sold 650 Toyotas a couple of years in a row. Meanwhile, I'm in the bathroom doing cocaine before I come out to shake the customer's hand. To, you know, <laughs> so you got a lot of energy at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, those 10 years, I would move, I'd get a good job, I'd be the top salesman, I'd get a new girlfriend, life would be good, I'd celebrate, I'd basically, you know, throw it all in the shitter through the next six months, move again, start the whole process over. And it it took those years. I mean, you can point out the obvious thing that was with me every time. And that was me. (laughs) No matter how many times I moved, I was still there. And, you know, and I took my problems, you know, with me. And I went to rehab when I was 26 stayed sober about six months and then relapsed and and stayed drunk for two years and finally and dude that wasn't it. i went to meetings i went to church. I say, yeah, I, i'm always curious about this so this is almost a personal note I, you know i have not struggled with addiction but i have a lot of people everyone has someone around them that has yeah, of course and your your thoughts on that you know the rehab sort of 12-step program like because as someone that sounds like you did go, you know drop back into it do you think that that program makes sense because i've just seen it doesn't seem as effective as you'd hope with people. I think things have really changed. And, and okay. 10 years ago, and in full disclosure, I'm now, as, as I think you know, I'm 29 years clean and sober, I'm happy to say. And, you know, I run, I'm the director of addiction and recovery for Deepak Chopra and the Chopra Foundation. And like, there's some cool stuff going on. But in the first three years of my sobriety, so at 29 years old, I did, my first son was born and I, I finally said, okay, you know what, I'm going to quit for real this time, like I, I, this human being who loves me and who I love and I have these feelings that I've never had before, you know, I need to do better for him. That lasted a couple of months. 
until I found myself, you know, in a dumpy motel in Wichita, Kansas, smoking crack for six days. And that binge ended with the me sitting on the ground handcuffed with the police searching my car and it had three bullet holes in it. Like it was this crazy event. You know, I recognize, you know, I-, I Just real quick, because I, I have to ask you. What did, what happened? Did you get in a shootout buying crack? Like what? You was know, that? yeah, a dealer shot at me. He tried yeah. to rob me. You know, I mean, again, you you, uh, I'll get off into one quick side note here too. Look, yeah. I was a clean cut white boy driving a decent car, a Toyota 4Runner. Yeah. I never got pulled over. I never right. got stopped by the police. I never because I looked basically like a young version of this. You know, if yeah. you're if you're African-American in that neighborhood and you're stopping your car and talking to somebody, you know, you're getting 10 years in prison. And so right. I, I, I it was my first lesson in sort of the inequities of, you know, yeah. racial disparities and what happens kind of in the hood. But in that particular instance, you know, I showed up at the same street corner, you know, three hours in a row flashing a couple hundred bucks, you know, at a time. And I think the guy finally was like, well, shit, I'm just going to take this. Yeah. And, and uh, so I ended up with three bullet holes in the side of my car, but the policeman, I'll never forget it, man. The, the cop is searching my car. He reaches under the driver's seat and pulls out a glass pipe. And, you know, any remotely rational person would have been thinking I'm in some serious trouble. Like this is, you know, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble now. And all I could actually think, Eric, was, so that's where that was. Like, I spent like two days looking for that damn pipe, you know, as an addict will. And like, that's how sick I was at the time. I think it was maybe the best and most important epiphany I ever had. And it was this simple phrase. And that's, you know, nobody's coming to save you. Yeah. No, my son, my newborn son certainly couldn't save me. My my mother, my job, my friends, my nothing outside of me could save me until I was willing to really make the commitment to change in my own life. And where was your son's mother? So we were still married and she was I I was on a job in Wichita at that point. We were living in North Carolina at that Mm -hmm. point in Greensboro, North Carolina. And you know, it just, I was on, I had to make a living. So I was off, you know, I had a crazy business. I, I chased hailstorms for about 25 years and uh, just another crazy weird thing that I did and still do sometimes. Yeah. And for, you know, I would take a crew and repair hail damaged cars. And Got so it. I ended up in Wichita, Kansas and, you know, and, and, I always make jokes. If you can get sober in Wichita, Kansas, you can get sober anywhere because it it sucked. You know, but I went to a meeting that same night of the of what I'm describing to you. I went to my first A meeting that I ever went to, like with the intention of like, okay, I'm here because I need to be, not yep. because I'm trying to get somebody off my back. Got it. And the next morning I got up and I put on my running shoes and I went for a a short, painful, ugly run. But I did those two things every single day for the next three years without missing a day. I went went to a meeting meeting every day. I went to a meeting every day for three straight years and I ran every day for three straight years. And slowly I started to build a life for myself. And back to your question though, look, I would say that AA and running 
equally saved my life. Like okay. running really saved my life. And then running like gave me a life. Then I, I used it as a, a, a tool to actually create a life for myself. I think things have changed. You know, what I don't like, and I'm, I'll get some nasty notes about this, but <laughs> I'm not, you know, the dogma that comes with AA and with 12-step recovery sometimes these days can be, it's not off-putting to me because I went through it. Yeah. But what I see is that it does, kind of to your point a minute ago, I think that it does repel some people. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the role of God, yeah. a God as we understand it. You can say that as many times as you want, but people who grew up in a church and maybe didn't have a great experience, they're still just hearing the word God, and they're like, no, that's not for me. Yeah. And so my feeling is that you know, all recovery. And that's why I'm with Deepak. I mean, to be honest with you, yeah. Deepak and this pro program we're working on called Freedom from Addiction, it's it's agnostic. It's like, yeah. it has no religious base. It has a very spiritual base, but it is about a combination of how the mind and the body work together. Deepak, yeah. Deepak totally appreciates, because look, man, you know people who've gone into rehab. Here's what happens. You go into rehab, you get your ass set down in a plastic chair and you start, you start therapy on day one, talk therapy. Talk therapy is very important. Anybody who's ever seen a therapist, it's critical in recovery, but especially in early recovery, the body is trashed. You yeah. need, you know, there needs to be a lot more attention paid to getting actually healthy. Yep. And you, everybody can't eat the same. You need to actually understand your own biochemistry, your genetics. What's yep. going to work for you? I ran. It may not be running for you. It may be biking. It may be paddling. Maybe yoga. It yep. might be meditation. Whatever it is, but you have to do something to yep. feed the mind and the body. Yep, agreed. And so, first off, what ended up happening with the police? You talked about getting arrested. Did they actually did it. They just let me go, man. They did. Yeah. Yeah. They just let me go. And again, I look, I'm very aware of my own too. Like it, it is yeah, crazy. I say it on stage. You want to talk about white privilege? Yeah. You know, I mean, I recognize there's no other explanation for why they would let me go. My car yeah. was filled with cans and bottles. It had a crack pipe. There wasn't any drugs left or I would have already done them. <laughs> but, you know, at that point, you know, they had more than enough to at, at a very minimum arrest me on some minor charge. Yeah. And who knows, maybe I said something that changed their mind. I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I will tell you this, like in that moment, <laughs> as we all know, we, we all have a tendency to say, as I call them, Santa Claus prayers, Yeah. Which basically means, you know, if you just, if you get me out of this, yeah. then here's what I'll do for you kind of a thing. And for the first time ever in that moment, I, I actually sort of uttered a prayer. I don't know if I said it out loud, but it was just to like, it was to have this burden of craving taking away, taken away from me. Like I just yeah. didn't want to feel like that anymore. And that was the last time, right? It was, it was. There's been a couple yeah. of other close calls where, you know, I think the universe kind of intervened uh, to my, you know, getting ready to use and my phone would ring or whatever. I mean, we've all had those experiences where I have, you know, a friend who tried to take his life a few years back and, and, uh, you know, he got this crazy call from a friend he hadn't talked to in 20 years. And I mean, literally he's, you know, he's on the, on the fringe of getting ready to take his life. And this friend calls him and, 
you know, and it, it stopped him. The friend never even knew it, you yeah. know, but it, it's interesting how our lives work that way. You know, words said to us by a stranger in passing can like change the entire course of your life. Yep. Like you just don't know. Totally agree. And so, all right. So you start running, you spend three years running. Did you already have a knack? I mean, I knew you had a knack for it in high school, but were you right off to running under five minute miles again? You know, no, <laughs> it was not that easy, but I will tell you this. I, I, you know, I did run like 30 marathons in those three years. You did. Um, wow. So when you say yeah. you started, you ran every day for three years, it wasn't just right. like I went for a three Obviously I had that whole addiction thing under control. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and look, you know, there's, it, a healthy, it, there's, there's a healthy side to addiction yeah. too. Being, a, you yeah, know, being fully engrossed by something that's actually good for you. I don't know that it's such a problem. No. Well, and people said, you know, and look, and I love to make this point. I had people in my life, friends, family, people who loved me telling me like, oh, it seems like you just switched addictions and yeah, like back to well, running. I'd take it. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. And it is an interesting thing that maybe you've experienced in some portion of your yeah. life. When you make a huge lifestyle change, the people that you did your old behaviors with, yeah. they want to pull you back. Because oh, yeah. 100%. Misery really does love company. And yeah. like my friends would say, hey, dude, you don't, you know, you don't need to stop. You just need to like slow down. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, have you been watching me for these past yeah. years? If I could slow down, don't you think I would have done that? Yeah. And, and it took me a while to understand it yeah. was their fear of kind of going on without me. Like I was part of the party bus and they wanted to stay on that bus. They wanted to keep the band together. And, and when how I were you by the way at this point? So I was 29 when I got yeah. sober. Yeah. And what, what's crazy though is over the next like, well, it even happens now, even after all these years, people from my past, and I believe in this this premise we call attraction rather than promotion. Yeah. <laughs> the minute you start promoting yourself and your lifestyle, you end up repelling people. Yeah. My mission is I just I just live, man. I share my stuff with people. Yeah. If, if they find some nugget they can use, but it's not my freaking job to tell somebody else how to live their life. 100%. But if they're, if they're miserable and it comes from drinking and drugs and they hear my story or they read my book and they're like, you know what? You know, maybe there's something there for me. Yeah. Then my, you know, my, my job, if you will, is done. It's a, it's, we all relate to struggle so much more than we relate to success. Yeah. Because it's success deep. comes in different packages, but we yeah. all struggle pretty much. Yeah. You know, your struggles are going to look different than mine. Yep. But to you and for you, they're it's just relative. as hard as mine. It's, it's yeah. all relative. Your struggles comparatively to someone else might not be anywhere comparable but to your own experience is relative and it's a struggle for you as I think what yeah. ends up with struggle. Well, some of the, my highs have been higher than a lot of people and my lows as, as you know, uh, have, have been, you know, lower than, than yeah. many, but you know, it, I took that energy. The other thing that I learned in those three years of running every day, because I, I think what I was trying to do, Eric, is I was, I literally was trying to run so hard that I was, I was trying to kill the addict. Like yeah. if I yeah. could have taken a scalpel and like cut that part of me out, like a, like a cancer, yeah. I would have done it. Like that's what I was trying to do, but it took those three years to understand the, the obsessive addictive part of my personality is all the best parts of me. Like yeah. 
And it's the same for any, like you're a successful guy. I'm not, you may not have addictive qualities when it comes to drugs and alcohol, but you can't, if you want to get good at something, you have to be obsessed. We agree. Yeah. It's it's, obsession is the right word. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, workaholic, all those things get thrown out for me. But and the obsession at sometimes it might be at the cost of a relationship or yep. and there are times when you have to pull it back and maybe family says, hey, man, that's yep. part of it, too, is it's the it's the willpower control. Like, are you doing it because you want to or are you doing it because you can't help it? And I think that's the part that you have yeah. to fight. Um, yeah. Well, the people who, you know, and you, we, we all know them. There's the people who are keeping score. Like if that score is counted by how much money they have in the bank or how many medals they get in marathons or whatever it is, it's a pretty shallow victory. I mean, so they're going to do what they do. But I, you know, my hope is for me that what I really am seeking is cultural experience. I, I, I want to be a cultural explorer. I want to see as much of this planet as I can before I'm done, tell as many stories as I can, and then go wherever you go when you're done. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that makes sense. So you run for three years. Was it starting to pay the bills at that point too? Were you making any money running or were you just I doing- was still, No, I was still, I was fixing hail damaged cars and like right. I'm making a lot of money at that. I actually had about 50 employees and built a pretty big oh, company. Wow. Nice. And so, you know, we flash forward though, and I started to like. If a marathon made me learn this lesson, then what lesson could I learn if I ran fifty miles, or if I ran a hundred miles, or yeah. if I ran a hundred hundreds of miles? Well, you said thirty miles, or sorry, thirty marathons in three years. Like at that point, a marathon's like when I go for a jog. Like it's it's not an accomplishment. Or after thirty this, of them, yeah. it doesn't really scratch that itch of I feel accomplished. Yeah, at this point, you know, and and I did. I reached the point where I'm like, okay. I still love doing marathons, but what I love about them today is, you know, shared camaraderie and suffering. Like you stand at the start line of any race, marathon, half marathon, 5K. Everybody's got their running clothes on. You don't know if the guy next to you or woman is a CEO or the janitor at the local high school. And it doesn't matter because either one of them is probably going to kick your ass today. And it's it's about having this human shared experience and the energy that comes with that people think that it's about racing man if you're out there to race other people all the time you know get a life you know it's like nobody unless you're winning an olympic gold medal like nobody really cares how fast you run a 5k or a marathon we all think the world is watching us and like heaven forbid we enter a marathon and we run it slowly it's like who cares just go participate be part of it. Yep. So agreed. And so after that three years, did you stop or what happened? Because no, nah, I kept going. So I, I started winning races across like I ran across the Atacama Desert in Chile and the Gobi Desert in China. And I wow. ran across the mountains in Ecuador and I I climbed mountains. How were you affording to do all this? I'm curious, just because you had that yeah, business. So- Yeah. So I would work like basically I was working hail season. I considered myself like a pro ball player, like I had six or seven months and, you know, I wasn't making like, I wasn't making millions of dollars, but I was making a couple hundred grand or something like that, which for me was a lot of money. Well, you live in North Carolina, the cost of living is crazy. It was enough to pay my bills, support my family, and I could take a portion of that and go chase adventure somewhere. Was was your wife and son, I'm young, but your wife pretty supportive of all this? She was very supportive until we got got divorced. Yeah. (laughs) 
that, no, that, that changes things sometimes. I'm but. actually kidding. He's still, we're still great friends. We got divorced awesome. in the early 2000s. And I will say, and this is an important point, she was there for me. She supported me more than any other human on the planet to, uh, when I got sober. And like we stayed married for seven or eight years after I got sober. But the fact is, I got married at 25 when I was very not sober. Yeah. And there came a time when I recognized I I didn't need a caretaker, which yeah. which she kind of was for years. And yeah. and I woke up one day and, and just realized, you know, I wasn't in love. There wasn't that spark and passion. We had two kids together, so that was forever. And so I needed to be honest and true to myself and and still be loving and supportive of she and my kids and yeah. You know, we got divorced. We moved from Monterey, California and moved back to North Carolina where it was less expensive. And, you know, we raised two great kids who are both, you know, adults now. And but she was supportive of the running. I mean, look, man, even today and, you know, some of the other things I've done, we'll talk about it in a sec. But, yeah. you know, my kids probably would have preferred I was around more. Yeah, you know? those kids. You have kids, Eric? I don't actually know. Not yet. OK, not yet. Well, when you do. Yeah. The one thing I always tell parents that exist and parents who are going to have kids later, you know, you don't give up your own dreams and your right to pursue your passions. Yeah. And the yeah. things you always you've spent all this time becoming the, the like fully formed human being that you are now. And too many people, they have a kid. And they're like, OK, I can't do anything else anymore. Now, all of my attention has to go towards, you know, raising the perfect child. Yeah. Well, the perfect child is raised by taking that kid with you on adventures, <laughs> right? And I mean, that's what I advocate for. So anyway, you I, look, I became the senior producer. This is a crazy story, long winding road, but I was a senior producer for ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition when that show launched. So I worked on the pilot and I worked for the next three years wow. on that show in the early 2000s. And like, it's How did a that story. Well, I got featured on CBS 48 Hours back when it was a news magazine. I was a sober guy doing Mark Burnett Eco Challenge, which was the precursor to Survivor. Yeah. And like, so I I did all these eco challenges and I I carried a like Survivor man. I carried a camera with me everywhere and I do these video diaries. Yeah. and I was really, you know, I mean, I, I should be like a superstar on TikTok right now or something because I was carrying a camera and hopefully not in a totally narcissistic way. But if I did stupid shit, I showed it. If I did something smart, I showed it. If I did something interesting, I showed it. And that got me this job with CBS, uh, oh, I'm sorry, with ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition because Tom Foreman, who's probably the most prolific producer in Hollywood these days, yeah. Here's another lesson, man. Always be nice to everybody because you never <laughs> know when they're going to be your boss. Yeah. He was the lowly field producer for CBS. Wow. For 48 hours. And I did this race in the Borneo jungle. Yeah. And he was this skinny 25-year-old Jewish kid out there in the jungle and, and, and totally out of his element. Like three years later, he ends up being the creator of Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And he, and he called and he's like, look, I love what you do with the camera. You know, you're completely unqualified for this job, but if you don't tell anyone, <laughs> then you can come work for me. So I'm working on the show. Yep. I, I get this crazy idea. I'm at, I'm at a race in the Amazon jungle and I get an idea about running across the Sahara Desert. And 
I basically, I start telling people that I'm going to be the first person ever to run all the way across the Sahara Desert with no did proof. You, I was going to say, did you have any idea how to do that? Did you know? Oh, no. Yeah. If a sponsor, <laughs> if a sponsor asks me, like, are you sure you can do this? I'm like, oh, yeah. No problem. Yeah. No, that's the way it's to like, do it. But yeah. But if a friend or family member asks me, I'm like, hell no, I got no idea. How, I, how it, it isn't the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific right. Crest Trail. You can't go buy a book at Barnes and Noble about how right. to do this. But flash forward, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, but a friend of mine got tired of hearing me say I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara. And look, yeah. Everybody said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, but it's, it's impossible. You can't. And by the way, were you still running all the time at that point, too? Oh, yeah. yeah, dude, I was crushing it. And I was winning a lot of races and yeah. doing some cool stuff. And What's your fastest marathon time, by the way? So uh, it's a good story. I actually, I ran over a period of about four years, I ran six marathons that were 301 to 305. Yeah. <laughs> And I was getting so frustrated and I finally like was like, screw it. I don't care about the three hour mark. And yeah. then I finally went and did well, once I stopped caring about it, you know, I broke three hours and then I broke three hours 50 times in a row. Wow. Um, yeah. Once you, it's like the I, breaking the two hour thing. Once someone does it, everyone's going to yeah, start. I've run a lot of marathons, but my best time ever was 252. So I, I probably should have been a lot faster and I don't know why I never, all my other times would indicate by the matrix that I probably should have been able to run like a 245, but uh -huh. I don't know. I either just wussed out or never could figure out how to do it. But yeah, but I, I you know, I got to run a lot God of ball. A sub three hour marathon. <laughs> yeah, you know, sub three was great. And you know, I always tell people, I'm like, look, you know what sub three makes me at Boston? Like a thousandth place. Is it really? <laughs> I didn't realize it was that hot. Jeez. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. But um, you know, and so for me, what I figured out was running, I started entering entering races like Badwater in Death Valley. Yeah. And like 135 miles across Death Valley in July. And yeah. and I was top I've been top five there like five or six times. I started winning a lot of big races. And so when I was when this guy suggested to yeah. me, the stranger, that maybe I ought to consider running across the Sahara, that's when I started I, I took possession of this idea. And I would tell people, and, and I say this quite often because being a critic is the easiest thing in the world to do. Yeah. Telling someone who comes you get this all the time. People come to you with a big idea or whatever, and you would never do this, but maybe you're the one going to them with a big idea and they're saying, oh, that's great, Eric, but you know, you, it's not possible. Yeah, it's all the time. I'm, Anyone I'm like, that tries to achieve anything gets to hear that's the yeah. dumb idea that's impossible. It's the easiest thing to say. And I, and I fully let those people own the impossibility and I took full possession of all that was possible. And yeah. maybe the addict in me also caused me to like dig in my heels and say, yeah. you know what, I'm doing this. Yeah. So a friend of mine introduced me to a guy named James Mall, and James Mall had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary a few years earlier for a Steven Spielberg movie. I go in, I tell him this idea of run across the Sahara. I, I it's the worst pitch I've ever given in my life, and he stands up at the end of the meeting and puts out his hand, and he's like, I'll do it. A week later, he How calls me for it. By the way, pardon. How much did you need? So I was pitching him. A, I was pitching him a million bucks. But look, dude, I was just trying to get. A, I was trying to get a friggin' student director. Like I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't think he was gonna do it. 
Yeah. A week later, he calls and he's like, hey, I just hung up with Matt Damon and Matt would like to executive produce this project and he also wants to narrate. Would that be okay with you? And I, I shit you not, I said to him, I took a beat. I was very quiet. I said, you know, man, I was really hoping for somebody better, but yeah, I guess Matt Damon would be fine. So to be clear. Are you kidding or did you not like Matt Damon? No, I loved Matt Damon. I just thought it was, I, I considered myself to be funny. So I thought it was a good story beat, but um, you know, so I now have two Academy Award winners attached to a, a, a project about me running across sand. Yeah. And by the way, Hans Zimmer ended up doing the score for the film. So like, <laughs> I got these three Academy Award winners. So I am a good salesman, never forget yeah, that. Say, at what point did you go, how the fuck did this just happen? Yeah, well, I woke up like six months before the expedition at like three in the morning one, one night. And I was like, holy shit. I have to run across the desert. Like, <laughs> yes, I, should probably, I should probably start training for this. Cause I was, you know how it is logistics. It's yeah. like launching a business. Like you're doing yeah. everything, but the core thing, you're taking yeah. care of all these yeah. pieces. But a year and a half later, there I am on the coast of Senegal in the Sahara desert. And yeah. I've got two teammates with me. One of them, by the way, was the, the asshole who said, Hey, you ever think about running across the Sahara? So Good. I, 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 him, I made him go with me. Yeah. And, and there's camera crews, a support team. Everybody's excited. All I can think is I have suckered all of these people out here to the Sahara and we're all going to die. <laughs> like <laughs> This is, this is not doable. And seven days later, my two teammates, it was 140 degree ground temperatures every day. Seven days later, my two teammates are on IVs. I've had two support people quit. We've been lost in sandstorms. We've run out of food and water. Like we've covered half the distance we were supposed to. And it seemed like the expedition, I mean, LA, they were gonna pull the plug. I mean, it was, it was gonna be a big embarrassment. I got them to hold off and I and I recognized in that moment, Eric, and it's probably the most serious thing I'll say is I was going about it all wrong. You know, I was so focused on getting to the end that I forgot the basic lesson of sobriety, which is one day at a time. We all know the mantra. Yep. Like the only miles I could run were the ones right in front of me. I couldn't, you know, you can't do tomorrow's miles today. You just have to get through this and then you get a chance to get through that. Yep. And, you know, again, ultimately we end up making it all the way across the Sahara. I ran two marathons a day, every day, for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off. So what is That's it? it? It's 5,000, 6,000 yep, miles? We basically ran, well, it ended up being because of that first week and we had a little lower mileage, oh, yeah. but we... We basically, for over a hundred of those days, we ran two marathons every single day, but we never took a day off in 111 days. We ran across Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt. Matt Damon and I actually created H2O Africa, and I raised $6 yeah. million during that time period. And today, H2O Africa is known as water.org, yep. and it's the world's largest clean water nonprofit. Also one of the best Entourage episodes. Ever. Exactly. Thank you very much. Yeah. It, and it came out of, you know. Doug, I, by the way, the producer Doug was on the podcast too. That's why I mentioned Oh, it. funny. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what's funny is 
people hear my ideas sometimes and like the Sahara and they want to, they always want to know what the result is going to be before you do it. And I get that, that that's the way business works. Everybody wants to know all the answers. Well, James Mall, to his credit, the director, we're in Senegal before that whole thing started. And the day before he looks at me and he says, so what do you think this movie is going to be about? <laughs> and I, and I basically said to him, I don't know, but if we make it all the way across, I think some shit's going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's basically what it was. And, and too often we want to know what the ROI is, right? We yeah. want to know before we do it, what we're going to get, what's going to happen. And as a culture, as a society, we've kind of forgot the value of just taking on a big adventure and yeah, not creating. knowing where it's going to go. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it's that's the sense of adventure. If, it, if you know yeah. where it's going to go, it's not really an adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why, again, running marathon. Look, I still love to run marathons, but the marathon doesn't really have anything to teach me anymore. I right. I still run hundreds all the time. And, you know, I've never run a hundred that I didn't want to quit at some point. <laughs> yeah. Because but but I tell people that's the whole reason to do it. Yeah. Like, that moment when I'm certain I cannot go on anymore, that's the only moment I remember because what I want to do is hit that point and then find a way to continue. Yeah. And and this is very like, timely, by the way. I'm training for a half right now, and it's the perfect yeah, amount of coaching I need right now. <laughs> what would you get out of it if you didn't have some right. some doubt and some questions? Exactly. And if at some point during that half marathon you're not going, fuck, this is a yeah. stupid idea. Yeah. Like you, uh, you by the way great i did run a full marathon a decade ago and i went i was going to train for a half i was sitting with my stepdad at the time i was tw- or actually so in more than a decade like 13 years ago i was 22 and i was like yeah i think i'm going to train for a half marathon never a runner never a distance runner and my stepdad looks at me and he was so at that time he's probably late 60s still running like eight miles a day he was a runner and he yeah. goes yeah what are you, a pussy? You're 22 years old. Go run a full marathon. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so literally signed up right there with four months of training left. But yeah, it is a point, right? Because if you can run a half, you can run a whole marathon. If you can run a whole, you know what? You can run a 50 miler. Like the danger of you knowing me at this point is that I will probably talk you into something really stupid at some point. Perfect. Um, I like I am, matter of fact, I'll even plant the seed now because I don't know how much more time we have. I've got yeah. time, but I, you may have to go. Yeah, in a few minutes. Yeah. I am my 30 year sober anniversary will be July 23rd of next year. And uh-huh. at, at Ashley Addiction Treatment Center, which is up in Maryland, I'm going to be running for 30 straight hours on, on their campus. Wow. So every year on my sober birthday, I run the same number of hours to equal the years that I've been yep. sober. And we're doing this as a festival, though. Deepak's coming. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get uh, Russell Brand to come. I'm trying to get Rich Roll to come. I'm trying yep. to get. You know, there will be a thousand people there, not to honor my sobriety, but to come honor something that's important to you. Yeah. You know, w- run for three hours, walk for four minutes. I don't care, yeah. but come with an intention. Yeah. To come do something. So. You, you're, you're going to, yeah, you got to send me info. I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested for sure. All yeah. right. So as we said, time's coming up. So after you got you, to get me to prison, <laughs> we won't. Yeah. Did you go to prison after this? I did. Oh yeah. I don't even know this story. So it's, you don't, can't... oh my God, dude. So, it's so, so I, across the Sahara. Then what happened? I've got to send you my book. All right. Look, and I'll, I will keep this part short. Yeah, we, we, we can, we, yeah, we can so, take it. 
arguments. It's okay. This is the, this is the, and like, look, I, I mean it when I say in a weird way, this is the crux of my story. The Sahara brought an amazing, like I was on Jay Leno. I got, I signed with William Morris. I got agents for speaking and books and everything else. I got all these great things that happened. I was on NPR. My, my joke is I got to be on fresh air with Terry Gross. And that was like a highlight of my life. And yeah. a couple years, life was good. I was speaking all over, yeah. doing things, whatever. I come back from running errands in Greensboro, North Carolina. And one day, a couple years after the Sahara, and I see movement. And six armed federal agents came out of a coffee shop in my building, handcuffed me behind my back put me in a police car and took me downtown in Greensboro and put me in jail overnight where I sat there not knowing, having zero clue, no clue as to what was going on. Wow. The next morning I'm handed a stack of papers. That's a, a federal indictment, a 15 count federal indictment. Unbeknownst to me, while everyone else was watching running the Sahara and yeah. And water.org is exploding and all this. One single IRS agent in Greensboro was not impressed. And he decided that he was going to open an investigation into my taxes. I pay my taxes. So that came up completely empty. But to skip to the punchline, <laughs> this is 2010. So how old are you? Uh, 80, 35 and a week. 35. All right. So you're old enough to remember 2010. The mortgage crisis, the world has fallen yep. apart financially. I become the only person in the United States to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, I could be charged, I could be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. And you, Jesus Christ, I didn't even know that. I became, it was, it was a crazy mixture of, I had yeah. just enough notoriety yeah. But I didn't, have any, I didn't have any money, no, not yeah. to speak of. You get charged yeah. with a white-collar crime in this country, yeah. $500,000 to a white-collar attorney, Yeah, is that's the starting point. Right. I didn't have that kind of money, and so I had a public defender. I had just enough notoriety to make me interesting, though, because and they knew I couldn't really afford to defend myself. So yeah. I... I take this to trial. I go to trial against the feds because, and 98% of people in this country take a plea deal because you're not going to win against the feds. Yeah. Long story short, I was found not guilty of providing false information on a loan application, but guilty of mail fraud because I signed a closing package for a house, for a property. I put it in the mail. It included false information. I didn't put it there. Mortgage broker admitted at trial. He falsified a loan application. He signed my name to it. We proved all of that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I still signed the closing package, which attested to this giant stack of papers. And, and just for anyone that hasn't done this, you mean when they hand you a stack of 500 papers and go, sign here, sign here, sign right. here, sign exactly. here. Yeah. Did I read it? No. no right? That, and does. so... Who nobody does. So I put it in the mail. It became mail fraud. I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in Beckley, West Virginia. So on Valentine's Day, 2011, yeah. my two teenage boys drove me to Beckley, West Virginia, and dropped me off at the front gate of Beckley Federal Correctional Institute, where I spent the next year and a half in federal prison. And you know, I the day I was arrested, people think cancel culture is a new thing. The day I was arrested in 2010, I was booted off the board of my nonprofits. I lost every sponsor, every speaking gig. I mean, and I mean the next day, like not 
Not when I went to trial, not no, it's, you know. it's guilty till proven innocent. Right. Exactly. Thank you. And this is all on my, it's all, by the way, New York times had me on the front page, yep. whatever. Uh, the, the point of this part of the story though, is actually, if you can believe it, 10 years later now, it's been 10 years since I got out of prison. I would not change it. It took me a long time to get to this point. And maybe it's just the, the convenient way we remember things in our lives. But what ended up happening there is what I said earlier, attraction rather than promotion. I, I was angry. I was sad. I was scared when I got there. But I recognized that my happiness was still entirely up to me. Yep. Even in that play, place, nobody else could screw up my life but me. Yep. So I started to run every single day and people made fun of me. I did yoga on the softball field by myself, which yep. if you ever go to federal prison, I don't necessarily recommend that, but doing uh, yoga. Yeah. The yoga, not, a, not, a, or the prison, but yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> when I got there, there's 500 guys in this prison. When I got there, there was, there were no runners, not like everyday runners. By the time I left a year and a half later, I had a running group of 50 guys. I had a dozen guys who'd lost more than a hundred pounds. Wow. I had 25 dudes doing yoga with me on the softball field three days a week. Wow. And that's how I got through it. I didn't do it for them. Yeah. I did it because my favorite saying is to keep it, you have to give it away. Like yeah. what, whatever you have to offer, whatever that gift is that you have, if you're not sharing it with other people, why, why do you have it? What, yeah. is, what, what is the point? Yeah. So that that really changed my life. And it led me to the final thing I'll tell you, which is my next expedition is yeah. from lowest to highest. I was gonna say, so, well, just real quick, because it's been, you know, eight years since you got yeah. out of there. So have you have there been any other big TV shows but adventures in the past eight years, or have you been planning for tons, this? Tons. When I got out, I basically just picked up where I left off. And yeah. and you know, okay, you saw the movie Eight Mile, right? Yeah. With Eminem. I love to ask people this and like, you saw it, right? Yeah, definitely saw it. Okay. The last, you remember the movie? Well, the last rap battle in the movie, yeah, you remember what happened, right? Yeah. So Eminem goes first and what does yeah. he do? He, he takes gets, away everything they can say against exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah. So when I'm on stage, like I just signed with Tony Robbins, I've got 20 uh -huh. speaking gigs next year with Tony Robbins. Uh -huh. Like, my my job, I look at it in this world, is to get on stage. I cut right here. I yeah. dump all this out on stage. Because if I tell you all the things that I fear that you are going to find out about me, it yeah. takes away all the power. And yeah. I, I, I don't encourage people necessarily to dump all their shit out without Maybe. thinking about it. But yeah. like, we think that our stuff is going to like somehow repel people. And what you yeah. find is the more you share your own struggles with other people, the, the more powerful it is and the more yeah. people are actually drawn to you. Yeah. And so two more questions. You're about to get to one of them. What's next? What's here about it? Yeah. So first of all, this thing with Deepak is big. It's yeah. really big. I'm, I'm, I could not be more excited. We're using technology and AI and like my meeting that I was just telling you earlier at the VA hospital, like we're talking to them about addiction and recovery and, and finding ways to improve outcomes. So that's a, that's a greater worldly goal is to try to change a billion people's lives. Yeah. But the tangible thing that I'm doing that I love is I'm going from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest elevation on the planet 
to yep. the top of Mount Everest, which as we all know is the highest elevation. And yep. the idea came to me actually while I was in prison because you know, we all essentially go through this never ending roller coaster of low places and high points and the lows last too long and the highs pass by too fast. But I decided to put a, a, a literal spin on the metaphor. That's oh, amazing. And so I'm going to, I'm going to start in Israel. I'm swimming across the Dead Sea to Jordan. I'm running 2000 miles across the Arabian desert. I'm paddling 800 miles across the Indian ocean yeah. I'm mountain biking from Mumbai to the base of Mount Everest, and I'm climbing to the top. There you go. And when are you doing this? January of 2023. So I got 14 wow. months. There's going to be some other big adventures coming up next yep. year. But, you know, my goal is just to tell stories and to get people to recognize that, you know, you this is it, man. Yep. This isn't a dress rehearsal, as they say. You yeah, know? Amen. You get one shot at this. That's true. So last question. Yeah. If you had to give one piece of advice, let's say if you had one piece of advice, you were either wish you were told or you were told that helps you achieve so much. Yeah. What, what was it or what would it be? What is something that can help someone aspiring to do to follow their dreams? You know what? I try to be I try to be just organic and I'm going to tell you what popped into my head. Do it. I hate, hate, hate. I shouldn't say hate, but I'm going to say hate. No, same, things happen for a reason. Yeah. Fucking nothing happens for a reason. It's the <laughs> biggest bunch of bullshit that people like to say, oh, things happen. Yeah. For nothing happens for the for a reason until you figure out what you're going to do with it. Yeah. You know Agreed. what I mean? Things happen. Good and bad things happen to us. If yep. you sit your ass on the sofa and you eat Cheetos when some tragedy happens, guess what? Nothing's going to happen. Amen. If, if you get off your ass and you do something, then something's going to happen. So stop saying things happen for a reason. Things happen because you make them happen. Amen. Love that. So, well, Charlie, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Brother, I, I, as you can tell, I had a blast. Me too. Thank you. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free. Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy. Then get you teamed up with individual experts all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.